Support for Yale Cancer Answers comes from AstraZeneca, a global biopharmaceutical company that is committed to bringing immuno-oncology to people living with earlier stages of cancer. Learn more at AstraZeneca-US.com. Welcome to Yale Cancer Answers with Drs. Anish Chagpar and Stephen Gore. I'm Bruce Barber. Yale Cancer Answers features the latest information on cancer care by welcoming oncologists and specialists who are on the forefront of the battle to fight cancer. This week, it's a conversation about cancer prevention and control with Dr. Melinda Irwin. Dr. Irwin is professor of epidemiology at the Yale School of Public Health and co-program leader of the Cancer Prevention and Control Research Program at Yale Cancer Center. Dr. Chagpar is a professor of surgery at the Yale School of Medicine. Melinda, maybe we'll start at the beginning. I mean, we all know that we're supposed to eat, you know, fruits and vegetables and we're supposed to lose weight and we're supposed to exercise and, you know, like, all that fun all stuff, that stuff, right? right? Yeah. But the truth of the matter is that the obesity rates in this country have been escalating over the last several years. And sadly, we don't really think that there's much end in sight, although some of us do try. Yeah, so what I find ironic is we've had since the peak in the 1990s when cancer mortality rates were at its peak, we've had a 27% decline in cancer mortality rates. And this is great and something that should be celebrated. And it's partly because of a lifestyle modifiable behavior. In this case, it was tobacco. Right. So with obesity, what's ironic is over these last two decades, we've seen an increase in obesity rates, not just in the United States, but globally. Mm -hmm. So what can we learn from what was done in the tobacco control or smoking cessation field that we can take into the obesity lifestyle behavior field? And one major lesson is that policy matters. So with tobacco, it was a lot of the policy changes regarding uh, smoking in public places and whatnot. So it is so hard to eat healthy and to exercise. And so when we look maybe upstream at what we can do to change the environment that we live in, to make it more uh, easier to eat healthy and to exercise. Here in New Haven, a couple years ago, there were bike paths put in or bike lanes put in so that people could bike, you know, as their transportation. And hopefully that's led to an increase in that type of transportation. But when we look at our food environment as well in grocery stores, stores, it's, it's not the healthiest foods, um, and the healthiest foods are more expensive than right. another. So I think there's a lot that we can do that's sort of not put on the person, but on our environment and society. Well, you know, when you talk about that, and, and certainly, you know, we we now know that obesity is very much like smoking was, and, and they say that sitting is the new smoking. But, but when we think about nutrition, for example— one of the things that I think made a huge impact in terms of reducing tobacco usage uh, was taxation. Um, uh, certainly in Canada, they found that when they increased uh, tobacco taxes, um, they found that smoking magically reduced simply because it was unaffordable. But here, I mean, we've seen things like, for example, in New York with uh, Mayor Bloomberg and his sugary drink tax um, not really being 
widely accepted and loved by the public. Yeah, and really great points that you raise here. And what's so important to realize over this last decade or two, what's increased the most is sugar-sweetened beverages significantly. And um, Americans are recommended to take in 30 grams or less per day of, uh, of added sugars. So one good policy change has been that food labels now have to pull out added sugars as a line item on the food label so that the consumer, uh, people better understand how much added sugar they're getting in. But the thought was that given most of people's sugar sweetened bev- uh, sugar intake in a given day comes from sugar-sweetened beverages. So it's not just soda, it's other drinks that contain sugar. Um, if we can do something to just limit that sugar, um, sugar from those drinks, that could have a huge impact on our, you know, obesity rates, you know, um, trying to not have them increase in prevalence over time. So there there are opportunities. I'm happy that this food label has changed to make it easier for Americans to better understand added sugars. Yeah. But even with the added understanding, the fact is, as you said, you know, the sugary sweetened beverages, the, the junk food is a lot cheaper than, you know, really lean proteins or really fresh organic vegetables. I mean, it's just... And it's also a question of accessibility. So every corner store has some of these unhealthy foods that are empty calories. They have no nutritional value to them, and they're they're accessible. So it's it's the fact that in some places, um, healthy foods are just not available to individuals. Right, especially in low socioeconomic status uh, neighborhoods. There's there's essentially food deserts. Mm-hmm. So how do we get around that um, in terms of policy, um, both from a taxation standpoint as well as from an access standpoint? Yeah. So there's a lot of work being done at the community level, um, you know, various community boards, and then also at the, the statewide level and the national level to really make sure that there are um, full, you know, grocery stores within certain miles of, of one another. And it's not just that uh, individuals in that neighborhood are dependent on the corner store. So there are initiatives going on um, focused on everything related to accessibility, to cost, um, and and whatnot. So it, it brings us back to the point of seeing how challenging this is when you want to intervene, educate, counsel, um, not just those with cancer, but any adult or child out there on how to eat healthy and to exercise the barriers that are in the the way. It's very challenging. And, and unfortunately, we still live in a society where many will put the, the onus or the blame on the person right. rather than the environment. So we have to have a shift in that as to what is sort of the the barriers, the root cause and whatnot. Because it really is hard. It is hard to eat right. It is hard to exercise. But let's talk a little bit about how diet and exercise and obesity play into actually getting cancer before we talk about the risk that it plays once you already have cancer. But talk a little bit about um, how, how being overweight or obese, uh, nutrition, Um, affects your risk in terms of getting cancer? Because one thing that nobody wants to get these days is the C word. Right, right. So there's been 
hundreds of studies, observational studies and some randomized trials looking at um, how obesity, diet, and exercise, uh, in, you know, I should say poor diet and physical inactivity increase risk of you know, over 10 different types of cancers. And there are three primary mechanisms. There's the sex steroid mechanism, the estrogens, there's the insulin pathway, and then inflammation. And so all of these three mechanisms or pathways we know have been shown to be affected with cell growth or proliferation and causing cancer. So higher levels of insulin, higher levels of inflammation, higher levels of estrogen are all related to certain cancers. And then we know that there have been studies of weight loss, exercise, healthy eating um, that have been shown to reduce those mechanisms, those pathways, the insulin, the inflammation, and the estrogen. And so from that, we, we know uh, that there are studies showing a, a direct association between these lifestyle behaviors and cancer and now better understanding the mechanisms and how that happens. So, Melinda, you know, one of the things that I think we in the public have become aware of is this epidemic now of childhood obesity. And I think a lot of that recognition has come to bear uh, from our former First Lady, Michelle Obama, who really put a spotlight on childhood obesity. So if you are overweight as a child... Um, due to whatever reason, poor nutrition, you live in a food desert, uh, you eat junk food, you know, yes, you go to school and there's some physical education that's there, but maybe not enough, and you're overweight as a child, does that mean that you are destined to get cancer? No, but, um, you know, obesity is associated with a number of chronic diseases, not just cancer, but, but diabetes and heart disease. But similar to like you hear that if you quit smoking, you can reverse, you know, your, your risk for lung cancer and your lungs can become brand new within so many years. And so, you know, preventing weight gain and promoting weight loss throughout our life is really important. And we know that a 5% weight loss in adults is clinically meaningful and can reverse or slow some of the impact on not just cancer, but other diseases associated with obesity. A 5% weight loss is manageable by many people. So if they weigh 250 pounds, it's about a 12-pound weight loss. Um, and so this has changes in those th those three pathways I mentioned, insulin, inflammation, and, and estrogens. And so for children, when we think about various times, you know, children innately are quite active in, you know, the the two to five-year age, and we want to make sure that, to, uh, you know, the five to ten, the elementary school years, they stay active. But then there's something that happens in middle school and adolescence and, and young adulthood where they just become less active. And is it because of social media? Is it because of the, you know, the devices, the iPhones and other um, distractions? Probably. And so we need to think about how can we really maintain their physical activity levels as they age in here. And then, and then also think about the, the eating um, aspects. And so it's really important to focus on preventing unhealthy weight gain. And then when they get to adulthood, you know, maintaining that weight and or pro promoting weight loss of just about 5%. So I think I think that's really the, the key message for everybody out there who is probably looking at the bathroom scale saying, well, thank you, I'm overweight now. So, so I know that I'm at increased risk, but what can I do? Um, you really can make a difference in terms of reducing your chances of getting cancer 
just by by reducing your weight to get into that normal body weight range or maintaining an ideal body weight? Well, in fact, there's been a number of studies showing that if, if you're of a high BMI body mass index and you can't, you know, you, you're, you, you want to focus on preventing weight gain because you know you just can't get down to that ideal body weight exercising can make a difference, even without weight loss. Even if you stay at a high BMI or a high body weight, if you exercise, if you can add that into your daily routine, you are lowering your risk for cancer and coronary heart disease, even without the weight loss. So, you know, it's sort of looking at this as two different behaviors, the eating and the and the exercise culminating in body weight. But if it's hard to meet one of those, the healthy eating or the exercise, think about one one of the behaviors. So, but for exercise, Melinda, a lot of people are going to say, geez, do you want me to go to the gym for an hour every day? I can't afford that. I have a busy job. I've got three kids. I've got life yeah. and everything's going on. Like, I, I don't have that kind of time. I know. That's why, once again, we have to change our environment to making it so it's so easy to walk out your door and uh, walk to work if you live close enough or, or have it easier to exercise. But it is all about sedentary behavior now. So over the last two decades, with the rise of technological advances in the iPhone, phone and, and all of that, we sit so much. And in fact, the significant rise in obesity rates over the last two decades have been explained by about 200 calories per day, a deficit, meaning people are moving 200 calories less per day, or they're eating 200 calories more per day or a combination. And so with this, the a lot more sitting that we're doing, that easily is about 200 calories per day. So if you can just try to reduce your sedentary behavior, standing a little bit more walking a little bit more, it adds up day after day. So it's not just about having to go to the gym, you know, a couple times per week uh, to, to meet those recommendations. Yeah. Well, we're going to take a short break for a medical minute. Everybody can get up and move so long as you're not driving um, and then come back to learn more information about cancer prevention with my guest, Melinda Irwin. Support for Yale Cancer Answers comes from AstraZeneca, creator of five new FDA-approved cancer therapies in the last four years and on track to provide patients with six new medicines by 2020. Learn more at AstraZeneca-US.com. This is a medical minute about smoking cessation. There are many obstacles to face when quitting smoking, as smoking involves the potent drug nicotine, but it's a very important lifestyle change, especially for patients undergoing cancer treatment. Quitting smoking has been shown to positively impact response to treatments, decrease the likelihood that patients will develop second malignancies, and increase rates of survival. Tobacco treatment programs are currently being offered at federally designated comprehensive cancer centers and operate on the principles of the U.S. Public Health Service Clinical Practice Guidelines. All treatment components are evidence-based and therefore all patients are treated with FDA-approved first-line medications for smoking cessation, as well as smoking cessation counseling that stresses appropriate coping skills. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to Connecticut Public Radio. Welcome back to Yale Cancer Answers. This is Dr. Anise Chagpar, and I'm joined tonight by my guest, Dr. Melinda Irwin. We're talking about cancer prevention and control, particularly the effect of lifestyle, diet, and exercise. And we were saying that, you know what? Sitting is the new smoking. Where smoking was the cause of lung cancer two decades ago, now sitting, even a little bit of sitting um, is really the cause of a lot of obesity and 
leading to more and more heart disease and cancer, the two main killers of people in this country. Um, So, Melinda, you were saying that you don't really have to get to the gym, just, you know, getting a standing desk or walking to talk to somebody instead of texting them. Like, how much exercise do we really need in our day to reduce our cancer risk? Yeah, so there's been a number of uh, recent reports that have come out, you know, about recommendations for physical activity. And there's two that I really focus on. One is the how many minutes per week you should be doing of exercise. And roughly it's two and a half hours per week. So you can do that. There's been research showing if you do that all on one day on a Saturday, you go out for a nice hike. You, If you do it two and a half hours um, on that one day, it's associated with similar risk reductions uh, for heart disease and cancer as if you did 30 minutes every day. There's another um, physical activity uh, marker to look at, and that's how many steps we do per day. So it's not so much how many minutes or hours per week, how many steps we do. And the goal, and it's kind of hard to meet, is 10,000 steps per day. 2,000 steps is about one mile. So this would be five miles a day walking. That doesn't mean exercise walking, like going out for a five-mile walk, but the number of steps you take from when you wake in the morning till you go to bed at night. And the good thing is most everyone has a cell phone and or an iPhone. And on that, there's it comes with an app, a health app. And if you click that, it actually records your steps per day. Most people carry their phone with them everywhere. And so when you go to bed at night, you can click on that health app and see how many steps you took. Maybe you're only doing a thousand steps. So set a goal for the next day to be 500 more steps, which is about a half a mile. Or maybe you're doing 5,000 steps regularly, because you can also look, you know, there's a calendar that shows you how many steps you did over the past month or so. So this is another way to try and see how you can get in um, physical activity in a day. And none of these really require going to a gym or sweating vigorously. It's, It's modern intensity activities such as brisk walking that's been associated with reductions in cancer and heart disease and diabetes. And the nice thing about the steps thing is that, you know, you don't have to do a whole half hour at a given time, right? Take an extra lap around the grocery store. P.S. Stay at the perimeter of the grocery store. That's where the healthy stuff tends to be. But, you know, take an extra couple of laps, you know, park at the other end of the parking lot. Small things can often help you to get those steps in. Take take the stairs instead of the elevator. You'd be surprised how many steps you can get in. Our office has recently moved, and I'm finding I can get in a lot more steps. Uh, so this is a good thing. So we can reduce our cancer risk by simply getting more active. What happens when people get cancer? Um, Let's suppose you're diagnosed with cancer, whether it be breast cancer or any other kind of cancer. Is your weight associated with your, your prognosis, how well you do, your outcome, your survival? Is it associated with any of those things or is it really the cancer that dictates how well or how poorly you're going to do? So great question. So as I mentioned, body weight is, is has definitely been shown to be related to developing cancer, and that's from observational studies. Similarly, among those diagnosed with cancer, there are 10-plus different cancers where obesity at diagnosis is also associated with poor prognosis, meaning a higher risk of recurrence and mortality. However, those are observational studies. We don't really know if you intervene and you lose body weight, does it actually lower your risk of recurrence and mortality? There are about five different randomized trials going on right now around the country and around 
the globe in different cancers, a couple in breast cancer, some in, in prostate and, 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 and other cancers. That will be the definitive research of, of say, for example, does a 5% weight loss actually you know, change your risk of recurrence and mortality? However, in the absence of those randomized trials, we do have trials, randomized trials of exercise, nutrition, and weight loss on changing those pathways I mentioned, those biomarkers, the insulin, the inflammation, and the estrogen, which we know are directly related to increasing risk and outcomes of cancer, recurrence, and mortality. So the, the trials we've done, as well as others, have shown that exercise, nutrition, and weight loss lowers risk, lowers insulin, inflammation, and estrogens with about 10 to 30 percent within six months of, the, of that intervention. So, so you can certainly affect the pathway, and now we're waiting for the long-term studies that can tell us, okay, so you affected the pathway. Is this really going to have an impact on how long I'm going to live, how long I'm going to live without cancer? Right. And so the reason we want to be sort of cautious in this is that there we do know that higher BMI is associated with certain types of cancers. So, for example, with breast cancer, um, triple negative breast cancer has been more associated with obesity. And once diagnosed with a triple negative breast cancer, would weight loss make a difference on recurrence or mortality risk? We don't know. It may only be beneficial in those who are ER positive, whose tumors are ER positive. And so we, just like we do with our um, adjuvant therapies and we do trials that are very personalized or targeted to different tumor types, we need to look at that with lifestyle interventions too. My hypothesis, I do believe that exercise, nutrition, and weight loss really matter for risk of recurrence and mortality. And even if they don't, we know with certain cancers that cardiovascular disease might be a primary cause of death and that these lifestyle behaviors improve that outcome. So because, I mean, a lot of people have said, you know, doctors ought to be writing prescriptions for exercise um, instead of or in addition to prescriptions for toxic drugs that we give um, that often have side effects uh, to kill off these cancers. Exercise often can reduce risk of, of cancers and has fewer side effects, if any, aside from making you healthier overall. Right. And also, you know, some of the the uh, cancer treatments might increase, you know, certain uh, factors related to cardiovascular disease, where here exercise and healthy eating affect all these chronic diseases favorably. So I, I agree. I think there's no downside to, you know, having physicians or clinicians um, write a prescription, so to speak, for exercise or healthy eating. You know, we really need to make sure that um, uh, patients are referred to programs in the community close to their home, that they can hopefully, it makes it easy for them to add it into their daily routine. For example, the YMCA offers um, the Live Strong Exercise Program, which is a free three-month uh, exercise program, twice-a-week sessions, group-based sessions for anyone diagnosed with a cancer, whether they were diagnosed yesterday or 10-plus years ago. And the YMCs also offer the Diabetes Prevention Program, which is a health 
healthy eating weight management program. So I really encourage those listening to to reach out to their local Y. These services are free um, and, and available to them. Yeah, you know, a, a patient of mine actually came back to clinic and said that she had joined one of these programs. In addition to the exercise, what she loves is she really loves the camaraderie of meeting all of these people um, who have gone through a cancer journey. And, you know, they've really bonded and become friends and now have social events outside of the Y and um, and hopefully are doing healthy eating during those social activities, too. Yes. But um, tell us a little bit about your clinical trials in this space, too, because one thing that almost anybody can avail themselves of is, is programs like the Y. Um, fewer people might have access to clinical trials that actually can help push some of the research and our understanding in this in this area. And we always appreciate kind of getting the answers to these questions so that other patients can benefit and we can figure out what's the best therapy for, for people. So tell us about your work and, and uh, the trials that are going on now. Sure. So a lot of the research um, myself and others across the, the country and the world have done um, of interventions of exercise and nutrition and weight management have been done post-treatment, so after chemotherapy or radiation therapy. And that's been great to really look at the mechanisms and how this could impact cancer outcomes. Tara Samft, a breast medical oncologist here at Yale, and I have partnered um, to do a study in women about to receive chemotherapy for breast cancer. You're involved in this too as well, so thank you. And what we're doing, what we find very novel about this study is we're actually intervening when women are receiving chemotherapy. It's over the first year, uh, so it actually extends a little bit longer than their chemotherapy. And there's 16 sessions, and some of them are done uh, where the registered dietitian meets with the patient um, when she's getting chemotherapy. And then some of the sessions are on the telephone uh, throughout the year. And um, the reason we chose to do this study, um, which is funded by the National Cancer Institute, during treatment is because when we were intervening later post-treatment, many of the uh, participants in our study, when they learned about the risk of of um, cancer, recurrence and mortality associated with, say, obesity, they were frustrated that they didn't hear that at diagnosis. Mm -hmm. And so we just said, that's right, so let's intervene earlier. And, and our primary endpoint, actually, is chemotherapy completion rate, because not all patients finish chemotherapy. They either have dose delays or dose reductions, often due to side effects such as fatigue or neuropathy. So we think exercise and nutrition may improve those side effects and in turn improve chemotherapy completion rate. And this might be just another mechanism of how these behaviors help with cancer outcomes. So we were in um, year two of this trial. We've recruited 40 women uh, who are receiving chemotherapy. We're going to, our goal is to enroll 250 women over the next two years years. About 50% of the women that we've approached that are eligible are enrolled. So that means it's a pretty good enrollment rate. But the other 50% that aren't enrolled, but they're eligible, it's because they are overwhelmed. They're overwhelmed with their diagnosis. And it's very understandable. It's hard for them to think about doing a trial. It doesn't matter what the trial is. It just, it's not a, a perfect time for them. So we're learning from those women as well as when is the best time to intervene with healthy lifestyle behaviors? We think it's never too late to, to start so that at diagnosis, they're given some sort of counseling about this, understanding if they're not ready, then they can get it post-treatment. 
treatment. Well, you know, that brings up a really good point, which is even outside of a, of a clinical trial. You're diagnosed with cancer and your life has just been turned upside down. And then to kind of throw into that mix on top of that, oh, by the way, you know, you should really lose weight, eat better, exercise, get that 150 minutes. And I, I can imagine for patients, they really want to do that because they want to live a long time and they don't want the side effects and they want their heart to be healthy. And they know that chemotherapy can potentially affect your heart health, uh, depending on the drug that's given and so on and so forth. But my Goodness, I mean, mm-hmm. for some patients, that might just be too much. I know. So so the, the message we say often is, you know, prevention of weight gain rather than um, focusing so much on weight loss. So prevention of weight gain and trying to move more, just reducing sedentary time. But it, it is hard. And so, you know, we, t- we take that into consideration, um, you know, with, with all that they have going on. But we, we do know that a lot of um, men and women with diagnosed with whatever disease have lived uh, many years before unhappy with their eating habits or or their body weight, and they see this time in their life as a a, a time to really focus on them. The priority is them, and 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 so they are very receptive to this information. As I said, it's only about fifty percent, you know, um, who are receptive at that time at diagnosis. But I think. We can't assume the other 50% aren't ready. They, so we have to give them some sort of little information, and then they can, can determine when they are ready. Dr. Melinda Irwin is professor of epidemiology at the Yale School of Public Health and co-program leader of the Cancer Prevention and Control Research Program at Yale Cancer Center. If you have questions, the address is canceranswers at yale.edu, and past editions of the program are available in audio and written form at YaleCancerCenter.org. I'm Bruce Barber, reminding you to tune in each week to learn more about the fight against cancer here on Connecticut Public Radio.